he looked at me and he said, Nathan, I have to go right now. Would you mind if I pray with you before we leave? You know, you have those moments in life, and many, many of us have many of them, but you have those moments in life that just stay with you. I remember this because I thought to myself, well, really, I should be the one praying for you, but you go ahead and start. And so he prayed and he said, Lord, I thank you for Nathan and what you're doing with him. I look forward to what you're going to do with him in the future. And I pray that you'll break in him what needs to be broken. What I thought when he said that to me was, what an arrogant man. And it would be years later before that story would overtake my pride and I could look in the mirror and say, what an arrogant man. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. We live in a now generation, but hasn't it felt that way for a couple of generations? Growing up, I remember the Burger King slogan as your way right away at Burger King now. Pizza was 30 minutes or less or it's free. And we're told that the average person has a 12 or even seven minute attention span. Fortunately, the lesson is going to be longer. It seems so foreign, this idea of preparation or contemplation or meditation. It just seems strange that when Jesus healed all manner of diseases and people were coming out of the woodwork to find him, the apostles find him in a solitary place. And they come to him and they say, hey, everybody's looking for you. He says, oh, really? Well, then we should go somewhere else. It's Mark 1. You know, Jesus knew plenty about his calling and his mission when he was only 12. But he waited until he was 30 to commit in baptism to that mission that would continue for three more years. We get a hint as to why this is so in Luke 2.52. Jesus leaves the temple and the text says he was smarter than all of his teachers and yet he remains subject to his mother And he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It wasn't his time. He wasn't ready yet. We weren't ready yet. More preparation was needed. I once heard Jack Lewis tell a group of aspiring students up at Harding Graduate School why they should pursue a Master's of Divinity degree. This was a great line. He said, Jesus spent 30 years preparing for a three-year ministry. We want you to spend three years preparing for a 30-year ministry. The early Christians in the end of the first century produced a book called the Didache. Now, this is not in the Bible, but it's a very early book that was used by lots of churches. It was a how-to-do ministry manual. And it's, it's not scripture, but it's interesting We need to balance things sometimes when you read some of these these early things. For example, I know that in the book of Acts, Paul baptizes somebody the very hour of the night that they're hearing the message. So we know that. But it's interesting that in the Didache, it encourages people that want to be baptized to spend three years in preparation for what they're signing up for. It's a challenge to me. I want to jump into deeper spirituality 
or this thing called Christian living with both feet. And you can achieve disillusionment or burnout or a whole host of nasty ends if you aren't prepared, if you aren't ready. In his first parable in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus offers the parable of the sower. It's, uh, it's one where he explains what he's talking about. And in the parable, we find out there are four different kinds of soils, and it represents different kinds of hearts. Some are unprepared for the richness of the seed. We wouldn't throw our pearls before swine. We wouldn't allow crazy Uncle Eddie to take the new Mercedes to his mudding derby. So why begin the long, treacherous spiritual journey unprepared? I say that because we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And I told you I was going to save the initial lesson for the end. This is about preparation and a heart check. I want to share a personal story with you, and those are always dangerous. They're dangerous because, as one person said, in every sermon, you want to make sure you say everything you believe about everything so you don't get misunderstood. And second, anytime you tell a story that shows one important facet of your life, you always want to cover it with, there's also another story, equally powerful, that shares another facet of my life, but I trust that we'll understand each other. I was an unusual kid. Uh, PKs, preacher's kids, are all unusual, but I was unusually unusual. When I was eight, I came to church in a three-piece suit, bow tie, and briefcase. And in the briefcase, I had a gigantic parallel Bible with four translations and all the tools one needed to find every mistake in the bulletin. For fun, I transcribed sermons from my little tape recorder, and I collected autographs of preachers at the Yosemite Bible encampment. I'm not making this up. Naturally, I was quite the ladies' man. You've heard of the unchurched. I was the two-churched. I was the churchiest kid you ever found. I also cut my teeth on sermon outline books, the, the, the tract rack that hung near the entrance to virtually every church I visited. I read every one of those. Every single thing I could get my hand on, I wanted to read it and be like it. And some of the stuff that I was getting a steady diet of when I was young, was the kind of stuff that went out of its way to kind of tell you, you know, what's going on that people don't like. So I knew the names of every false teacher there was, never met them, but I knew they were wrong. And I got a steady diet of this when I was a kid. And I'm sensitive in this area because it's personal for me. I loved Jesus Christ and I wanted to be like him and I wanted to tell the world about him. And I assumed that love for Jesus was the same thing as being a fan of my group, loyalty to my people who agreed with me, and every right position on every single issue was on equal footing. To be faithful to Jesus meant being right about everything. And to disagree was simply soft language for being a heretic, being an outcast, someone who desperately needed me to set them straight. And it meant that when I was a junior in high school, I loaded up the car with a bunch of my friends and I drove down Cox Creek Parkway in Florence, Alabama, and I visited every single church that had a different name. I knocked on the door and I told the unsuspecting preacher, or in some poor cases, the church secretary who answered the door, good news for today, salvation has come to your house. 
I'm here to tell you the truth. It meant that I would craft opportunities to invite Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses into my house unsuspectingly. I knew that if you called the number on the commercial, they'd send you a book of Mormon, then they'd come visit you. In between, I did all my research that I had hidden back behind the seat of all the archaeological evidence that shows the Book of Mormon doesn't work. And I was waiting for the opportunity to trap them so that when they were felt trapped, they would recognize what a gift I was to them and become converted to my way of thinking. It also meant that I was a very neurotic kid. I couldn't figure out why. How could someone who knew every right answer and all the right questions somehow, who was God's gift to the world, be worried or afraid or suffer emotionally like people who were unsure? Near the end of my high school experience, I was invited to attend one of those uh, summer camps at one of our Christian colleges. I had never been before. I was looking forward to it. And the speaker that evening was a man whose name I had heard before. He was a friend of the family. His name also appeared in one of those bulletins that I told you I had read a lot when I was young. I didn't know him well. I didn't know his heart. I didn't know what he thought. But I didn't know what others thought of him. And I knew what I was supposed to do. So after he presented his lesson, I walked on stage. I introduced myself, said, I'm Nathan Guy, and I have, I have something to tell you that you need to know. Oh, Nathan, he said, I, I knew you when you were a little boy. It's so good to see you again. Come walk with me. If you have something I need to hear, then I need to hear it. I'm here to listen. We walked to a dormitory nearby, and he told me that he needed to go back into the back room for a minute. But he said, stand here in the living room and keep talking. I'm listening. So I didn't ask a single question. I didn't ask him to clarify. I told him what I'd heard and why he was wrong. Occasionally, I would hear him say something back like, that's a really good point. I need to reflect on that. Or he said, I think that's a misquote, Nathan. I've heard others use that quote too, but I didn't say that. Or if I did say that, that was a misspeak. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. I will be more careful in the future. Or I can see how someone could interpret what I said that way. But what I meant was this. I'll try to be more thoughtful next time. You've really helped me by bringing that to my attention. He was treating me like an equal, listening to my every word and responding with humility and grace. And I thought, well, of course you should. After all, these are pearls I'm giving you. He came, he emerged from the back room and I could tell he had changed out of his suit and he was in shorts and a t-shirt with a towel wrapped around his neck. Would you walk with me some more? I have an appointment, but I want to continue this conversation. So we walked and talked until we came to the school pool. I looked up and I saw nearly a hundred people waiting to be baptized, which surprised me because one of the things I told him is that he doesn't believe in baptism anymore. He looked at me and he said, Nathan, I have to go right now. But I'm glad that we have this talk. You helped me. Would you mind if I pray with you before we leave? You know, you have those moments in life, and many, many of us have many of them, but you have those moments in life that just stay with you. I remember this because I thought to myself, well, really, I should be the one praying for you, but you go ahead and start. And so he prayed and he said, Lord, I thank you for Nathan and what you're doing with him. I look forward to what you're going to do with him in the future. 
And I pray that you'll break in him what needs to be broken. That's a line from Psalm 51. Maybe you remember it's the prayer of David, a deeply flawed man, who after his terrible list of sins and uh, with the innocent Bathsheba, he realizes the devastating nature of his sins against the Lord. And he begs the Lord that the child's going to live. What evil has the child done? Let the child live and the child dies. As a result of the sin of David, can you imagine watching someone die in your place and knowing it's because of you? I can imagine the size of the knot in the pit of his stomach as he fell on his knees before God and he shouts out to God. This is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. I know my transgressions. My sin lies before my face every moment. I have sinned against you. I did that which is evil in your sight. My history of sin stretches back to my toddler years, maybe even back to infancy. I don't remember a time when I wasn't like this. You desire truth deep in my bones and the inward parts. He's pouring out his heart in repentant prayer. And that's when this phrase comes from his lips. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Who would have thought that a broken heart would be the starting place for renewal? But David needed it. His list of sins are almost too painful to list. The mistreatment, the murder, the treachery, the cover-up. But it turns out some of those same sins are in the same list in Romans 1 and Galatians 5 with selfish ambition and arrogance, and boasting, and jealousy, and dissension, and faction, and discord. Same list. I didn't know that verse at the time. What I thought when he said that to me was, what an arrogant man. And it would be years later before that story would overtake my pride, and I could look in the mirror and say, what an arrogant man. I wasn't ready. I don't fault myself or anyone like me at that age for wanting to share Jesus with their neighbors. In fact, we need more of that. What I didn't understand is the heart you have and the desire you use to bring people to Christ must be as pure as the Christ you're seeking to bring them to. I really think that I was trying to turn a story about God into a story about me. And it made me delight in all that God seems to think is not so good, like keeping records of wrongs or being blind to my own selfish ambition. It made me all mouth and no ears, even though the Bible says a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be quick to listen, slow to speak. It caused me to see people as projects and scorecards rather than people made in the image of God. To say it another way, it was all word and no spirit. It was strength of will turned into will worship. It's what Paul is upset about when he sees it in Galatians. And so this man chose not to see me as an annoying blip on his screen, but a person to be loved and taught. That was over a quarter of a century ago. 
But I remember it like it was yesterday, and I think about it every time I have a chance to try to mentor or make a difference in the life of a young person, especially one who reminds me of me. God's the farmer in this story. He comes to us as empty, barren fields after a long drought. And taking up the tools he fashioned with his own hands, he slowly breaks the ground. He retills the soil. He replants the seeds, and he makes preparations for a brand new harvest, if we will let him. I really think it's important for those who believe in Christ and those who don't believe in Christ to take a heart check. Maybe your heart is rocky ground. It's very thin soil. Everything in your life is thin. Thin commitments, thin desire for spirituality, thin skin, thin tolerance for others, thin knowledge of the word, thin prayer life. When you stick your neck out, it gets scorched. And your love for spiritual discipline, spiritual activities has been relegated to have-tos or pretend-tos. Maybe your heart's a thorn patch. Your desire's there. Your months or even years of study and living in the bubble has made you feel invincible. But your plates become so full with pressures from every side that your heart can't hold it all. And the cares of this life are beginning to take first priority. Maybe someone's heart's the roadway. There's simply nothing there. These aren't seekers who come to church or listen to sermons. These are hearts who wouldn't know what to do with the Spirit of God if they ever encountered him. No human in the world would buy a roadway intending to reap a harvest of fruit. But God, who sows seed, sows seed, even if it lands on that, because God's no human. He's in the business of resodding. I've seen it happen. He can take down a parking lot and save paradise. I forget so easily that forcing people to do what I believe is right is not quite the same thing as allowing God through me and through you to plant, to let him grow, to let him start the process and continue the process so that we can be ready to reap the harvest when it comes. Trying to experience a change of life by focusing on behavior or activities alone is like trying to move a train by jump-starting the caboose. I can't hear unless I have ears to hear, and I must be broken down from the inside before I can even see the problem. And that changes how I read the fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians 5. Paul has spent chapter after chapter exposing the lie that comes with pride and, and self-help and sin management and behavior modification. He says, who has bewitched you? That's who's put you under a spell. You were taught the gospel, which is about a God who did what you could never do to create within you, what you could never create for yourself. And now having begun with the spirit, Galatians three, are you going to try to finish things off by returning back to the flesh? Do you think God's finished work plus my two cents is what it's all about? Of course not. God forbid. That's one of the two problems he's facing in Galatians. One is a kind of legalism. That's what we've been talking about. It's forgetting that I can't be the solution because I'm the problem. But there's another problem Paul has to deal with, and that's Galatians 5 and 6. 
That's antinomian grace. That's the view. That since we're saved by God's sheer grace, who cares how we conduct our lives? And so he wants to make a difference. He wants to try to fix these twin problems, focusing too much on yourself and not caring about how you live. And so the thing that connects these two problems is the Holy Spirit of God. It's the link. The message of the Spirit breaks us down so that we come to Jesus with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. And then in this upside-down kingdom, it's only the empty-handed ones, those broken down by the gospel, who are then able to be built back up by God doing his great work in you. So here are the questions I ask myself. Do I want the fruit of the Spirit of God? Do I want to be patient if it's going to make me look weak? Do I want to be kind if it means others win and I lose? Do I want to be generous if it means I worked for this, I earned it, you have too much, you don't need it, and yet you end up with it? Do I want to be self-controlled if it means I have to watch what I say, where I go, and what I do? Do I really want peace when I have the chance to really stir things up? Do I really want to love even if I've never loved in return? The fruit of the Spirit is God-cultivated, and it comes to a God-cultivated heart, one that wants all of its thinking and living and being and doing to be God's way, not my own. I can't orchestrate it, but I can pray for it. God will break what needs to be broken. He can break through soil as hard as a rock. God can break through anger. God can break through selfishness. God can break through our mistakes and our misunderstandings. And in so doing, he can rebuild us from the inside out. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguy.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.